Hi, this is Chad, and this is where product leaders and managers Welcome make their move. Welcome to the Everyday to Innovator masters, Podcast for product managers, leaders, and innovators. Your so host is Chad McAllister, helping love. you become a product master. Listen and get ready now, for higher simple, performance. Not easy. For the doctor the is in. words are often confused. A completed activity can be viewed as simple when the processes involved are known. Not too many of us that have been part of an innovation project would say that it was easy. The activities and processes that allow us to uncover a customer problem or invent a new technology, develop solutions, and ultimately launch products customers love, they're challenging. But they're not a mystery. We discuss them on this podcast frequently. Several frameworks exist to help make what is certainly not easy approachable and ultimately maybe even simple. Our guest shares a nine-part framework she used as a Fortune 100 Chief Marketing and Innovation Officer. With it, you might see how innovation can actually be simple. To help follow the discussion, she gave us an infographic of the framework, which is part of the written summary of the discussion. And you can find that at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 207. Our guest is Amy Radin, and she's a nationally recognized thought leader on how to deliver innovation for sustainable business-changing impact. And the framework we'll discuss is also the topic of her new book, The Change Maker's Playbook, How to Seek, Seed, and Scale Innovation in Any Company. It's going to be a great discussion. I hope you enjoy it. Amy, thanks so much for joining the Everyday Innovators. Thanks so much. It's really a pleasure to be here. So we got connected actually through your publisher because you wrote a book that caught my attention. We'll talk about that in a moment. But when I looked at your profile, I went, wow, you have a ton of experience in this world of innovation and how that intersects with marketing inside some pretty impressive brands. Can you just give us some highlights of that innovation work? Sure. Well, I'll tell you, I sort of fell into working on innovation. And I had, I'd say the first chapter of my career was just doing direct marketing Hmm. uh, for American Express. And when this thing called the internet came along and uh, big companies were trying to understand the commercial viability of the internet, I was recruited to this role at Citi to lead the digital transformation. And that was started out chapter two, which was my whole corporate innovation journey, where I I saw what I believed was that what I had done as a direct marketer, which was basically partner with technologists to use massive data sets in a regulated environment to to deliver personalized, relevant experiences, products, and services to Hmm. our customers. I said, well, that seems like it'd be pretty relevant to what people are talking about now. It's just a different channel. And kind of, you know, made made the leap and never looked back. A couple of years into the work I was doing at Citi, which was really all about, you know, that credit card, the Citi credit card business uh, was about a $5 billion bottom line when I was there. So massive. And you can imagine the conservatism around doing anything at all. That would, um, you know, rock the boat in a bad way. But people, I was recruited to really figure out what is the value of digital to this business and how do we really integrate? So it was a tremendous sort of massive scale innovation effort against a business that was generating at the time about 20 or 25% of Citigroup's earnings. Hmm. Um, So a couple of years into my role there, my CEO came to me one day and he said, well, I I want you to make us more innovative because we're not innovative and we need to be innovative. And he was a very, very, very smart guy, incredible financial manager. And understood the business so well that he could really see the underlying trends uh, were going into man change at some point, and he was willing to invest. 
So um, at the time, you know, you don't say no to the boss. And I'm kind of like, okay, does he think I'm really special? Or have I drawn the short straw? And <laughs> it was really, I think about it, I always, I always tease him about it. We're, we're, we're still friends, so that's good. That it was, and it opened up this whole world to me. And just through networking, I, um, I started to discover that, wow, there is this discipline called innovation. It's, it's not cool stuff. It's not random. It's not throwing spaghetti against the wall. It's not just technology. And um, set up a little skunk works mm-hmm. in my team. And we started to do um, experiments on new kinds of customer experiences that were enabled by advanced technologies. Hmm. So that was, that was really how I got going. What's an example of a Skunkworks project that turned into a product that we might have touched or be aware of? Sure. But this is a this is, I have an interesting example because it's what, you know, very often with innovation, you know, timing, time is pretty important and you can be yep. early is as problematic as being late. So here's one that manifests itself in a different way, but we were early. Um, back in around 2004 or five, we observed a trend in transit systems around the world in urban markets that wanted to bring new technologies into their systems, particularly contactless payments. And their motivation was cost and just efficiency, avoiding queues, you know, moving people through the system quickly. Mm-hmm. And um, we ended up striking a three-way partnership between MasterCard, City, and the New York City uh, Metropolitan Transit Authority, which is, I think mm-hmm. it's either the first, second, third, or fourth largest transit system on earth, um, to do an experiment where we actually retrofitted the turnstiles up and down the Lexington Avenue line, which is a major line in in Manhattan, um, to accommodate a contactless reader at each turnstile. And our objective, so the MTA's objective was, you know, improve the operations and the the customer experience of, of the commute. Our objective at City was to make ourselves a top of wallet product. So to make the card something more, you know, bring innovation and a use case to the city relationship that would cause people to use our products in general, Hmm. uh, not just in transit, but on an everyday basis. And MasterCard was trying to instigate uh, retrofits of of point of sales terminals for, um, for RFID. So we all had, we all had a goal and there was one of these, you know, magical alignment of interest. So we achieved great success in terms of a lift in customer loyalty um, and, and unbelievable customer feedback. We did very small scale tests. We, we implemented before there was an iPhone, you mm. know, before there was contactless technology embedded in mobile devices, right? Before mobile devices were more important than people's physical wallets. So we got great results, but the way the, what's come to pass is we did not roll out exactly what we did which was an RFID chip embedded into a separate device that went on your key ring. Mm-hmm. But think about how ubiquitous RFID payments on mobile devices have become now. Right. And one of the immediate benefits of our project was that City was able to, City positioned itself as a leader in transit payments and cut different uh, municipal finance and other sort of corporate banking deals mm-hmm. with transit systems around the world. So, um you definitely, you know, you see like mobile payments in Starbucks mm-hmm. today. And, you know, I'd say what we did, um, you know, 14 years ago was a was a very early manifestation of what now is pretty much everybody does. Yeah, commonplace. And I'm sure there's some listeners that have had one of those on their key ring. Went, oh, yeah, I use that, right? 
Uh, oh yeah, I actually, it's amazing how, I mean, New York is, is a big place, but a small town. It's amazing how I still run into people who say, oh, I remember you were in, you worked on that test. And I'm like, yeah, I worked on the Lexington Avenue test. And people are like, wow. So it was very exciting. Um, it's hard. Um, it's hard to be early and you never can call the timing, right? right? So our strategy was always try to be in the game on bets that we thought looked like they had potential. And then you, you got to hang in there until the timing is right. And, mm-hmm. and sometimes, you know, with big companies, sometimes there's a willingness to do that. And oftentimes right. there isn't. And so the CEO asked you to help them become more innovative. Yeah. And you learned about innovation, actual discipline. Right. And that's what you write about in your book, a nine-part model for, you know, helping a company be innovative. And I want to talk through that model a bit. As I looked at your model, it looked like that there's aspects of a clear process in there, like we might line up to something like design thinking. Right. So, you know, that comes to play. But also there's a, this deeper understanding of we're doing this inside an established organization with a culture and a structure and barriers in place. And it seemed like that your model kind of reflected that reality. Reflect on that with me, how those, those things kind of came together. Yeah, Chad, I think that's exactly right. That I and I, I and I have never been a formal student of design thinking, right? But when I from just you know little workshops and seminars and working with consultants, it's clear I'm very my philosophy is very much aligned to the design thinking philosophy of um, you will be most successful in developing a new product or service or any innovation if you start with and really delve into uh, defining who your user is mm-hmm. and what the problem is on their terms and then constructing a solution to the problem that they have not, right. you know, this is, you know, sometimes we product push. And so, um, so I really, really believe that, but, but you're right. And having been kind of in the hot seat and been the senior executive trying to move forward, whether it was at first my skunk works or later, we actually set up a corporate kind of a venturing group. We were working with, with city teams in markets around the world in the end, what gets you to kind of roll the rock up the hill every day, because it is sort of a Sisyphusian task, mm-hmm. what gets you to do that is sort of the idea is the easy part. The technology is not a barrier. I think pretty much anything is technologically possible. Um, it's hard to get, you've got to get the right people in the right roles and kind of champion the right um, culture, but also uh, you've got to deal with the hard part, which is where I spent a lot of my time as a leader, is um, overcoming policies and processes and a governance model that was built for sort of industrial strength, predictability, mm-hmm. and effectively to stomp out anything that looks different. Right. You know, uh, you know they're all about you know, big companies, whether they're regulated or less regulated, they're all about continuity. Yeah. And, got a, and, and that's, I have a lot of respect for that. But then innovation is a discontinuity. So a lot of what my book is about is um, how do you be, how do you avoid being kind of the bolt that's thrown into the wheel (laughs) that screws over that messes everything up and and instead be kind of embraced and carve out a space where you can execute. Yeah. Uh, So that is, that is the level um, where a lot of the time in the book is spent. Yeah. I think you described that tension well that exists between Operational performance and what organizations are geared towards, some mm-hmm. risk aversion because we want to maintain operational performance and excel in that area. And also this need of, you know, in the, your case, the CEO and CEOs of, of many companies that say we need to be more innovative. And that creates that natural tension with what is already established. Yeah, I mean, these companies, you know, I, I would, I, 
I, I believe I maybe I'm you know crazy to still be such an optimist, but I really believe most people coming to their jobs want to do the right thing. Yeah, absolutely. And people, you know, we're also engaged on a daily basis um, with the with new technologies, and we're feeling the effect of of technological, demographic, climate, all the other changes on our lives. We sort of know intellectually that things have to change, but the how of mm-hmm. doing it in a way that feels personally safe and also allows you to deliver, you know, continue to run the business is this is a new set of skills and a new outlook. It takes a lot of leadership. Um, and it does take people, people need to feel psychologically safe around change. Right. You know, people are, we are naturally risk averse. It's not just about the sector. Right. Uh, we will keep going on our path. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people, most people do not run, you know, helter skelter into a firestorm of, of new stuff. Right. Whatever has made us successful in the past, we're comfortable with that. Why would we want to mess that up? Yeah. That's why I always say I was, I was a pretty mediocre science student, but Newton's law sticks in my mind as a, as a great metaphor. <laughs> you know, an object will remain on its current path unless forced to change direction. And I feel like that's, that's very much reflective of, of how we think about mm-hmm. change. I don't think anybody's doing anything bad or wrong. It's just, you've got to have that extra push to enable the change in a way that people feel safe and they understand that you're not going to take down the business. Right. Good. So let's talk through your model to help us figure that out. So there's nine parts in this uh, innovation model. And the first one, we start with discovery. Is that right? Discover? You know, consistent with what we were saying before about the the role of design thinking and how philosophically aligned uh, my work has been to that. I think that great innovations come from starting a starting point of understanding, you know, there's a group of users Mm -hmm. that I want to serve where I see a really profound problem and I want to understand how to solve it and solve it, not just at a rational level, but also at an emotional level. Um, And so it's the whole discovery phase, which I think never stops. I think you're, you always should be Mm -hmm. out there discovering is really putting yourself in a position to walk in the user's shoes, Mm -hmm. be in their environment and not just listen with your ears, but also listen with your eyes because so much of what you can learn about user needs is from observing behavior. Yeah, um, absolutely. In financial services where we would do, you know, have the opportunity to go into people's home or office environments and just the way they manage their papers yep. or have their financial affairs organized on their desktop. Um, you'll learn stuff that people will never, ever tell you. Yeah. I'm a big fan of those user observation studies, ethnography, and you can ask questions and get completely different feedback than you would if you observe them. The observing is what people actually do. Oh, yeah. I also, I never ask people what they would do. Right. I mean, it might not never, it might be interesting, but if I ask people what they would do, I usually apply like a 90% discount factor to the answer. You have to find out what you do or what did you do in this situation. And yeah. and you get those stories and they're they're very, very valuable. Good. We first discover what's our next step in the process. So the next step, and I, I want to say, you know, it's funny. I had to put these in an order. You know, one of the funny yeah, things about it. I, I realize that's not really a linear process, is it? It's, it's not a, linear. Yeah. And, and you know, a book is you're stuck in this two-dimensional environment. So you have to lay things out right. from sort of me. Um, so there's a logic. But I think, you know, I want to be just, uh, just point out that I think um, this is uh, very iterative. It's nonlinear. Um, steps could take days, weeks, months, or years. 
And so it's what I created the model. It was really to sort of say, okay, you've got to cover these basics. But um, if you look at the infographic that I attempted to design to explain the model, there's a lot of arrows running around between the different steps. And that's sort of meant to convey, this is almost like a a dynamic three-dimensional, you know, spinning model where you're just, you have to kind of dive in and engage in all parts. So, and Amy, let me just ask you about that. I'm glad you mentioned the infographic. I'll put a link in the show notes for listeners to your infographic. So anyone listening to this that wants to have the visual representation of the model, you'll be able to get that too. I'm interrupting the interview to share something really important. We'll get back to the discussion in just a minute, but I want you to know about an extraordinary system called the Rapid Product Mastery, or RPM Experience. In just nine weeks, you can have a higher-performing product team, meeting only 75 minutes a week with no travel required. One product leader, after trying all the typical training workshops, turned to the RPM Experience to get real change for his team. He said that this is the only training that provides an integrated product management perspective. It did exactly what I needed it to do. If you have a group of 5 to 14 product professionals, learn how you too can have a high-performing team in just 9 weeks, 75 minutes a week, without travel. This is the system created by Chad, based on his experience working as a product leader, coaching several organizations, and deeply studying innovation during his PhD work. Get the guide for yourself at theeverydayinnovator.com slash RPM. The next element of the model is position with purpose? Position with purpose. And it's what I'll point out about, about this, this aspect of the model is that when I initially outlined the book, uh, my approach in this section was going to be a pretty traditional marketer's approach to positioning. Now, you figure out a need that you you know problem that you want to solve for the audience and then the positioning how do you actually talk about it how do you want to aim it at the market so that people connect with what it is you're trying to do for them and as i started to speak to the people you know some of the 50 people who i interviewed for the book um a lot of what i was hearing back was like no 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 amy it's not just about positioning you have to really think about purpose Hmm. and and very early in the innovation game and this is whether you're at a at a big company or whether you're the founder of a startup what is the impact that you want to have? Now, how are you really going to change the world? And, and not, not literally, but how are you literally going to, mm-hmm. what are you going to do that's really going to improve upon um, the lives or experiences of your users? And so I think the reason purpose becomes really important is it sets a much higher bar than a short-term financial goal. So it stretches you towards really being innovative. And because innovation is so hard, I think of purpose as the emotional fuel that keeps you going. You know, if it's just, eh, it's just something I have to do and I'm doing my job and I got to get these 10 things done to get paid and get my bonus. Very, very hard to be driven to accomplish the hard work of innovation. Um, Whereas if you have a purpose, it's like, wow, this is what I'm coming in every day with fire in the belly to do. And it makes it much easier to express the value that you're creating to your users ultimately, when you start showing them prototypes and mm-hmm. communicate. Yeah, you, you bring them into more of a meaningful story, right? This is the, the vision, the purpose, why we're doing this, and you're engaging right. them at a more meaningful level. Right. I also think from a workforce standpoint, um, as, the, as the mom of a couple of millennials, mm-hmm. I just see, see the standard for joining, uh, for affiliating with a brand and pursuing careers. You, you just see the role of purpose, uh, whether ex- explicitly or implicitly, 
um, being a much more important weighting factor yep. among that workforce for making job and career choices. So I think as a practical matter, um, you will attract better talent mm-hmm. if people understand the bigger problem that you're solving and that you are committed to it. Yep. Very wise. Next element of the model is being resourceful. Yes. So I always believed, uh, you know, I worked in in some tough companies where we definitely were raked over the coals every year on our budget and what we were going to be spending money on. And, but, but I always believe there are resources and I think for, uh, but too often we define resources as well. I've got to hire people and I need money. And as I went around, particularly in the last four years, when I've spent a lot more of my time with startup founders and not so much in the corporate world, it's amazing how much people can get done hmm. with so little when they have a clear sense of purpose and have focused on a profound um, market need that they want to address. And so this whole idea of resourcefulness to me is very different from having resources. It's like you don't automatically have people and money, so you have to be resourceful. And a big um, well of of a big well that helps you actually generate resources you never thought you had is having a good network. Hmm. So my personal strategy in today's world where I can't possibly know everything or even a little bit of what I need to know is I try to sustain and give to a very robust network so that I always know who to call. There's always somebody I can ask for help. And most people are decent and they'll, they'll help you. So um, this is just having an attitude of I can get it done. And if I sustain a strong network, I'm basically banking resources that I didn't even know I had. That's a good point. That network that extends beyond what we might obviously think of. Oh, yeah. And then not always assuming, you know, if you, especially if, if you're in a corporate environment, you know, someone like me, I came from marketing where at big companies where, you know, maybe you, you had a new concept and you'd spend, you know, $10,000 a focus group just to figure out if people like the idea. Well, mm-hmm. when you get exposed to founders and you see how they do their initial insight gathering, right. you don't need that kind of money necessarily. Let's go spend uh, two hours at Starbucks and, and uh, ask people what they think. Right. Or just watch people right. and see how they're struggling to solve problems. So I think it's getting, at, getting away from the orthodoxies mm-hmm. that big companies teach us about how things need to get done and understand that a lot of times – if you're early in a process, you know, sort of good enough, maybe good enough. You don't always need to be, you know, perfection is the, can be a real enemy. Right. Um, especially at an early stage. Good. Be scrappy. Resourcefulness <laughs> is all about scrappiness. Yeah. Yes. So we have discover, position with purpose. Love that. Be resourceful. What's another element? You know, the model breaks down into three overarching phases, seeking, which is the three pieces we just talked about, okay. and then moving into seeding. And seeding really, really encompasses three things. The first is um, prototyping. So developing some physical manifestation of what mm-hmm. it is you do, you know, you're proposing to do and getting, um, getting reaction from people who you think are your user segment. And doing that in a very quick and iterative way and understanding that getting people it's actually, if your prototype is too good, you shut down feedback. You know, people right. don't want to hurt your feelings. So sort of the cruder, the better. Mm-hmm. Um, get people to collaborate with you. Um, as soon as you start to understand how who your users are and how they're likely to behave around what it is you want to do, you're starting to gather raw material to inform your business model. Huh. 
Um, and business models are a tricky thing. You know, I think of them not just about financials. I mean, obviously, you want to know what are the revenue streams, you know, what do I think, what do I think my potential revenue streams are? What do I think my potential big expense hits are going to be? Where do I think I might be, need capital? But also, what are the other feasibility requirements? So what would it really take to deliver what it is people are responding to? Um, so you want to start to cast your business model and understand it because you're going to need that to ultimately get funding, whether it's from your CFO or from a group of angels, right? You're going to need, but, but don't get too precise, right? I think one of the best ways to kill innovation is to impose, you know, kind of traditional metrics too early in the game. You're, this is not about producing a P&L. Right. It's about really understanding, do I think I'm heading towards a business model that's going to be able to, you know, stand on its own two feet? And then finally, assuming you, you know, you get to a working prototype that is, that is, that can drive a viable business model. And hopefully you've got the, you've got the go ahead to start to really, you know, build and scale. Um, this whole seeding phase ends with what I call the green light moment. Hmm. So what got you to this point up to almost the end of seeding is not necessarily going to take you forward. So really important to pause, however, briefly, and just ask yourself, have I got the infrastructure, the capabilities, the skills, the talent, the mm-hmm. organization structure is the cultural dynamic, right? So that I actually can uh, grow my user base, um, deliver my products and services at scale and do so with a level of quality, uh, compliance, and at least, you know, early days cost structure um, to to move towards uh, big success. So this sounds like launch planning, go-to-market strategy sort of work is taking place at this green light moment. Yeah, it is. And I think in doing my research for the book, I focused a lot on this notion of the green light moment, Mm -hmm. because I see a lot of, uh, you know, oftentimes you think about like what makes what makes great ideas fail. There's there's lots of things, but it's this moment when you're ready to scale and people it's very human. People may have to move to a different job or out of the job. Maybe the person leading the team is a great early stage person, but they're not person to take it forward. So it's really important to acknowledge that mm-hmm. and say, are we really ready? You know, we've been an incredibly successful, fantastic team that has already, you know, busted through brick walls just to get to this point. Right. Um, do we have the self-awareness and the flexibility and the courage and commitment to the next stage to acknowledge what, what has to be different now? So I really wanted to focus on that point because I think it's a, it's 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 an emotional one that can be that takes reflection and self awareness to get past. Good. So now we're on to your last grouping of three for the model. And what what do you call that? Right, which is scaling. And scaling has three parts. The first, obviously, launching, um, and really saying, you know, again, we're ready for prime time. You know, you probably have a real a real marketing or sales budget now. Uh, you've got commitments to uh, to revenue goals and mm-hmm. margin. So you're not, you're no longer, your goals are no longer about, you know, generate some viable concepts that we can take to market. You know, as hard as that is, when all of a sudden, like now there's the pressure to deliver impact to the financials of the business. Right. So really, you know, you, you shift gears very much to a whole new set of activities that hopefully you've defined well in the green light moment. And I talk a lot in this part of the book about, do you have your metrics in place? 
Um, are you having, even though you're in a launch mode, you've got to continue to, you know, are, do you have tests? Do you have test plans in place? Because you're going to keep tweaking and experimenting and trying new things. You're going to have, if you're a product manager, no doubt you have a roadmap. Mm-hmm. where you may have implemented version one or two, but you've got a lot more objectives in front right. of you. And are you testing and learning sufficiently to continually um, kind of validate that your priorities are right mm-hmm. and that the specific dimensions of the user experience or, or product formulation that you're counting on, um, are they still lining up with, with what your users are thinking? So to really be very sensitive to the, requirements around how you're measuring and how you're testing, even while you're launching. Then I, I move on to um, anticipating and adapting, hmm. which, is, which is where the where the method ends, which is kind of, um, you're never done. That's the you're never done message um, that in the world we live in. Clearly, we see, you know, the Fortune 500 is, is full of companies or actually companies who are no longer in the Fortune 500 who became complacent. Right. who were unbelievably successful in another era and who did not continuously anticipate and adapt. And so it's... Like it, Kodak comes to mind. Right. I mean, takes you back to the beginning of the cycle yep. um, and just, you know, emphasizes the importance of um, you're never done. Yep. How do you stay on top of things, even though now you're accountable for, um, for big goals and, and numbers? And that, you know, that's kind of like where I started, uh, my innovation journey back to my CEO telling me, you know, make us more innovative. He was anticipating the disruption mm-hmm. of, of the payment space mm-hmm. and knew that we had to adapt. So, um, so I sort of started at the end and, and figured out the beginning. Good experience. Oh, it's really um, career changing. Mm-hmm. Really glad I did it. I think I would have been probably would have been very happy uh, being a direct marketer, but um, I'm one of those people who runs towards the new and different, and there's nothing more energizing than getting this stuff to work. Innovation is the right space for people that love new and different. Yes, and you have to be ready to, well, luckily I have a lot of hair, so I tore uh, <laughs> a fair amount of it out. I mean, it, it's got its frustrations, but I wouldn't do, I'm just not the kind of person who can do a, a business, as, business as usual, whatever that means anymore. I like to, I like to you know, go into the white space. Mm-hmm. And now what I really enjoy is um, uh, sharing my expertise with other people who are doing this work. I think it's, it's personally fulfilling. And I think it's um, so critical now for the economy and for our society that there are change makers who are shaping uh, future business opportunities that are going to solve problems, um, create jobs, yep. you know, create uh, economic stability. I just, I think there's a yep. lot of, I, I feel a strong sense of purpose behind what I'm doing. Yeah, and the everyday innovators, that's what we connect to also, right? It's fundamentally, the way I express this is creating value for the customer. And if we create value for the customer, we create value for the organization. And that's what we love doing. Yeah, it's having having an impact, getting yep. up in the morning right. saying, I'm really making a difference. Yep, exactly. That's what we want to do. And I love a good innovation quote. I asked for you to share one with us. Uh, tell us what that is and why you chose it. Yeah, so the quote I picked out was one one that pops up near the end of my book, um, which I kind of get a kick out of, which is that startups don't have a monopoly on innovation and legacy companies don't have a monopoly on bureaucracy. Um, And the reason I chose that, you know, it's funny, when I started researching the book, I deliberately 
went very broad in terms of um, industry verticals. So I probably covered 10 or 12 verticals in the interviews. And also I very deliberately spoke to both corporate um, uh, innovators and also startup founders and investors. And the reason I did that um, was, you know, we'd like to dwell on how different we are from each other, especially in today's world. Right. And I, my hunch was, you know, from being around long enough was, you know what, I just think these people have more in common than they may acknowledge and they actually could learn from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so much great innovation comes from uh, hearing diverse views. And so um, it's something else that I'm, I'm very, very passionate about. And so I just think, you know, when, when I talk to uh, startups, you know, sometimes you get, oh, those, those corporations, they're just dinosaurs. Like we're going to flatten them. Then you talk to corporate types and they say, oh, the startup founders, they get away with murder. Right. You know, the regulators don't know what they're doing and they're watching them. And I'm like, you know what? They're both, let's, okay, let's set that aside. I've known many fantastic uh, corporate innovators who need, they need the psychological safety to take risks. They need mm-hmm. a little bit of breathing room. They need a little bit of air cover. They need partners. Um, and, and there's a lot of great talent inside these companies. Um, they need help and support. On the other hand, I've seen, you know, founders who have passion and ideas and tech skills, and they're furiously and passionately barking up the wrong tree. Right. So I think sort of the magic is in, is in the listening. And so that's that, that line just, you know, I think there's a, there's a lesson there that I think um, any innovator can benefit from. Yeah, I like that. And as you were talking about that, I thought, well, you know, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, founders of Google, right? They all started startups, but became large companies, which is what I think most startup founders want to do is create something larger than, you know, it began from. There's got to be a lot in common along that journey. There's a lot of commons. And I think as you grow, you have to be careful to not become the very thing that you didn't want to become. And certainly these days, you know, you look at um, some of the headlines that companies like Google are getting um, around needing to, you know, kind of rethink their workforce practices. Um, you get big and you have to say, and I know from just talking to people at, at Google, I know that there's a big focus on how do you, how do you keep that culture mm-hmm. of innovation and how do you let your size be an advantage? And in the end, it's, it's people, leadership and culture. You know, there's not, it's not magic. Right. It's bringing in people who have a commitment to maintaining and sustaining a certain culture and leaders who are going to, you know, do the things they need to do to help those people succeed. Excellent. Those insights and others are in your book with this uh, innovation model, The Changemakers Playbook, How to Seek, Seed, Scale Innovation in Any Company. Tell us how we can find that book and also where people can find out more resources. I know you write a lot and have great resources for us. Sure. Thanks a lot for asking me that, Chad. My book is available, you know, any place, any e-commerce site uh, that's selling books, certainly Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, and many other um, e-tailers. You can also uh, visit my website, which is www.amyradin.com. And at my site, you can pick up some free resources. There's a download of some content from the book. Mm-hmm. There's the one-page infographic of the Seek Seed Scale Framework. Um, sign up for my e-newsletter. And also, I'm, I'm doing a fair amount of public speaking these days. And if you're interested in inviting me to speak to your organization, you can contact me there or just, just send me an email. So main site for those resources, amyradin.com, amyradin.com. And I'll make sure that gets in the show notes. 
And Amy, I appreciate the information. This is a helpful model because it does couple the realities of innovation takes place in an organizational context. You help us think through some of that and working with the resources and barriers. And so I appreciate you bringing this book to life too from your experience and sharing the information. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I love the idea of everyday innovator because I do think that innovation is an everyday task. Mm -hmm. And so thanks for having me on the program. Thanks again for listening to The Everyday Innovator, where product leaders and managers make their move to product master, learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so you'll create products customers love. Find the written notes of the discussion with Amy at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 207. And as always, keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit TheEverydayInnovator.com.